listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm your neighbor, Wade Bearden. And I'm your neighbor, Kevin McLenathan. Wade, say hello to my little friend. And by that, I mean this adorable hand puppet. Kevin, could this hand puppet by any chance be named Daniel? That would be a logical name for the puppet, since that is actually my middle name. But sadly, he's not half the hand puppet of the great Daniel Tiger. Listeners, we have a very special episode for you today. First, we review the Tom Hanks starring film from Marielle Heller, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And then we indulge our need for speed with our review of James Mangold's based on a true story film, Ford vs. Ferrari. And that's not all. I also had a chance to chat with Joanne Rogers, wife of the late Fred Rogers, about the new film and what it was like to see Tom Hanks play her husband. I might be overstepping a little bit here, Wade, but I have to know, did you conduct the entirety of that interview via hand puppet? You know, Kevin, it would be a lie to say anything other than yes. All that's coming up, listeners, on this episode, episode 226 of Seeing and Believing. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers in here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be? My neighbor. Hello, neighbor. We are here, episode 226 of Seeing and Believing. I had a mix-up last week, Kevin. I I said that we were a fourth of the way to a thousand. Of course, you corrected me. That's not right. <laughs> but now we are over a fourth of the way through 900. So, you know, that's also a big deal. It's quite a milestone. You know, you get you take your milestones where you find them. Yes. And since 226 is such a significant number, we have a <laughs> jammed-packed episode. I'm really excited, Kevin, because two films that we're reviewing today have been films that I have been looking forward to for quite a while. And it, I guess it finally feels like we are in the fall season. We are in the busy season of movies. And that's... That's a great place to be. Yeah. Busy season is definitely a good word for it. I, um, I've um i spent most of the last week just feverishly going from screening to screening, trying to cram them all in. So it is kind of nice to take a break from that hectic pace and, and sit down with you and actually talk with talk with you about a couple of them. Yeah. And it's good to actually talk because that's what Mr. Rogers would have wanted for us to talk and to connect. <laughs> And I got to say, Kevin, it was it was kind of surreal talking to Joanne Rogers about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And, and listeners, we are going to jump to that interview after this review. So that's coming up later. Kevin, it's A Beautiful Day on the podcast because we get to review Marielle Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Here is the film's official synopsis. Tom Hanks plays Mr. Rogers in a timely story of kindness triumphing over cynicism. It's based on a true story of a real-life friendship between Fred Rogers and journalist Tom Janot. After a jaded magazine writer, played by Emmy winner Matthew Reese, 
is assigned a profile of Fred Rogers. He overcomes his skepticism, learning about kindness, love, and forgiveness from America's most beloved neighbor. Kevin, last year, both you and I very much enjoyed Morgan Neville's documentary about Fred Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor? This movie is different, to say the least. For starters, it's not a documentary. And secondly, and here's here's a really big one, we're watching someone else play the iconic TV personality. Now, I want to get into your thoughts about the film, but let's go ahead and begin right here with this lead performance. In your opinion, does Tom Hanks' performance as Fred Rogers do justice to the man we all grew up with, or is it just too weird to see anyone else except Fred Rogers be Fred Rogers? Well, that's a, it's a good question, and it might end up shading into an answer about the difference between a good performance and a performance that feels like the real person. Because I think that Hanks is obviously a very good actor, and the performance that he gives in this film is is compelling in its own way. I don't know that it really gets at the heart of who Mr. Rogers was in the as effectively, I guess, as Morgan Neville's documentary did. I found myself watching uh Hanks as Mr. Rogers in this and, you know, enjoying his presence and definitely observing the a lot of the choices that he made in order to essentially be more Mr. Rogers like. Um, Hanks obviously is, he, he's a bigger physical presence than, than Rogers was, at least in terms of just, he's, he's more solidly built. Um, he's got a differently shaped face. Um, and so he has to compensate for that through, uh, using his physicality in a way to kind of minimize that difference. And I think that overall he, he does what he can. I just think that, Rogers himself is such an inimitable person, not just in terms of his personality, but just his screen presence was so unique and the way that he held himself in relation to other people was so unique that there really can't be a replacement for that, even in the most exacting uh, replica of that in a in a feature film like this one. So I I'm conflicted about it. I'm happy to say that it did it wasn't as off-putting as I feared it would be. I had some skepticism about Hanks as Mr. Rogers from kind of the moment that I heard this. It seems like they were kind of just taking one famously nice person and asking him to play another famously nice person. And I wasn't sure how well that would work. I think it works as well as it can, but you know, sadly Mr. Rogers was one of a kind. And I don't know that this film really fully succeeds in getting to the heart of what made him so special in the same way that the documentary did. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to see someone that we know because he was on television played by someone else when you when you watch a movie about a person uh, maybe maybe a musician someone we know primarily through audio versus someone we know primarily visually it's a little bit easier to see someone else play them and 
it is different, especially at first. I like Tom Hanks's performance because I think he captures the essence or what I what I would argue to be the essence of Fred Rogers as someone who when when they direct their attention to you, you just you feel special. And I, I think he communicates that here. And then I also think he communicates just how and I don't mean this in a bad way, how odd Mr. Rogers was. And when I say odd, I mean he was very much unlike most people in that he was kind and almost every single aspect, uh, at least publicly. And he, he wasn't embarrassed to indulge some of these uh, childhood storytelling techniques. And so we get a peculiar person and by the end of the film, I think we realize he's peculiar because he's he's learned to um, – I don't even say he's, he's become the best of us, but he's become this man of virtue, this man of kindness, and this man of love. And I think Tom Hanks captures that pretty well. And he knows when to add humor to that performance. He knows when the silence – uh, that Mr. Rogers gives individuals. Uh, he, he knows when to use that to make us laugh uh, or perhaps even make us smile at how uncomfortable maybe that could have been. And so I do like his performance. Here's one thing that I was so, so surprised about this film, Kevin. I'd love to get your thoughts. I've been waiting to talk to you about this. Is this film, I'm talking about oddness and I'm talking about weirdness. And this film is a lot more peculiar than what I thought it would be. And I I guess I was expecting this sort of straightforward inspirational story. And And it is in many ways. But the way in which it tells this story is a lot different than I expected. And so at the beginning of the movie... Uh, Tom Hanks comes out as Fred Rogers, and he's recording an episode of his television show. And then we find out that he's actually speaking to the viewers about this journalist played by Matthew Reese. And so what we get is, okay, this is this is not reality, but it's a form of reality. And so I, I just thought that was really great in the way that it communicated this story. And I wanted to, I wanted to ask you what you thought about that that framing device, if you will. Yeah, it's an interesting gambit to essentially frame the entire film as an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, except for adults. That's uh, definitely a gutsy move for sure. Um, I'm not sure that that choice by... Uh, writers Micah Fitzerman Blue and Noah Harpster quite ends up working as well as they want it to. I I respect it. I don't think that it's fully successful, and I think part of that is is just that th- thinking about the different ways that an adult viewer receives this kind of. Um, entertainment versus a child viewer the when when you watch a movie as as an adult or when you watch any piece of media as an adult you bring to it kind of a a sophistication that a child doesn't have there's a an ability for 
a child to watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and this is something that Rogers himself really understood well, that's just guileless and very open. So that means that for Rogers to talk so directly to a child in that show's format really works because it does feel, that experience does feel almost as if he is speaking directly to the child in his or her living room. Watching this as an adult, it feels like a distancing mechanism, almost as if this film's version of Mr. Rogers is kind of almost godlike, or he it's almost like that framing device in It's a Wonderful Life, where he's sort of this being who's not fully of this world, and he's telling us a story about this world. And that's interesting. I'm not sure that it really works in getting us to the bottom of who Mr. Rogers is in a way that feels satisfying. Because that's what Lloyd Vogel in this film, Matthew Reese's character, that's his whole project, right? Is to sort of understand what makes Mr. Rogers tick, find what it is that makes him so remarkable, and explain that to his magazine's readers. This film follows him on that journey. I don't think it really succeeds in doing that for its audience. And I think the framing device as a way of putting all of this action in the form of a grown-up episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I think that works against that goal. It's Well, see, uh, Mr. Rogers has always talked about the importance of speaking directly to children and seeing their feelings as important, that they are important and we must address them directly versus, hey, I just want you to be seen and not heard. Wait till you're grown up and then we can, you know, we can deal with this. And if, if that is his stance and if the idea is that what happens in our childhood ultimately can shape us or at least affect the trajectory of our lives, when we get him speaking about this character, we're essentially realizing, uh, that the things that have happened to him in his childhood are the things that have propelled him to where he is today, whether that's anger or whether that's unforgiveness. That's kind of been building since his childhood. And Mr. Rogers and this framing device is kind of going back and communicating that through the style of the show. And he's saying, well, you know, this is uh, Lloyd Vogel and this is his problems. This is what he's going through. And through that unraveling, we kind of come to understand who that character is. And we understand that these simple principles about expressing our emotions and understanding that we're valuable, these simple quote unquote childlike principles are just as important for us as adults. And there, there's a, a scene where, you know, we joked about Daniel, Daniel Tiger, where Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks, he pulls out Daniel Tiger and he's asking Lloyd about a childhood toy of his. And we get kind of through that questioning, this backstory about Lloyd's life. And that frame 
And that puppet helps that character to understand the root of what's happening in his life. And so later on in the film, when we get this sort of weird montage where Matthew Reese's character is lying in bed, and then we get a cut shot of Daniel Daniel Tiger, the puppet, lying in his place as if he is the puppet. Visually, all of what I just said is communicated. So I think that that, I, I, yeah, I think that framing actually works really well across the film. I, yeah, I mean, I think that those stylistic flourishes in the, in the meat of the film that, uh, Heller inserts, like that dissolve from, uh, Daniel Tiger into, uh, Lloyd Vogel or a sequence kind of at the beginning of the film's final act where Vogel almost kind of hallucinates entering an episode of Mr. Rogers neighborhood himself. And he kind of goes into the land of make-believe and has a conversation with King Friday and his wife is there as Lady Aberlane. And it's all kind of surreal in a way. I, I don't, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with those sequences as such. I think trying to make sense of them in the way that the film seems to want us to make sense of them as part of a story that Mr. Rogers is giving to us in this adult episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I don't think those choices make a whole lot of sense. And it ends up, for me, making the framing device feel less like something that enriches the way that the film investigates this really famous figure and is reduced to something more on the level of a gimmick. One that's interesting, but one that I, I just, I don't find a whole lot of there there once the novelty wears off. I I mean, I think all of it kind of flows into the idea, and visually it's communicated throughout the film, is Mr. Rogers's world invading our world. What can he teach us? And specifically, we see that through a very personal story, uh, through Lloyd's story. And I was worried about this film because when it was announced, it was like, oh, it's a movie about Mr. Rogers. Well, how is this character going to grow or change across the film? Because Mr. Rogers has kind of always been Mr. Rogers to many of us. And, and by accounts, that's, that's who he is off screen as well. And yet we get this very personal story. So it's about the invasion of his, uh, of his values and his kindness and his attention and what that does to our world. And so it's nice to see the, uh, what looks like the same sort of visual style of the television show. I heard they use similar cameras from the television show. You see some of the uh, brighter colors, the simple production design. We watch that. And then when we cut to Lloyd's world, the, the color palette is pretty dark. It's pretty moody. And I also, one of the things I really love the visual flourishes is, um, Whenever we go to a different city, we go to a model of that city, kind of like the intro of uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And it all seems to, to denote the idea of this world being – of the world being this kind of dark place and a difficult place and a scary place. And perhaps this individual who's very different than that could speak to us and could – bring us 
some sort of hope for today. And so all of the framing device, all the visual motifs, the modeling, everything kind of communicates that, that one kind of big idea of this world entering our world and what that means here and now. Yeah, but the thing is, is that to show that what you're talking about, the, you know, Mr. Rogers world kind of entering our own or invading our own, I think that cinema already has the tools in its toolkit already to kind of suggest that blurring of boundaries without having to resort to explicitly using some of the same uh, visual gimmicks of the television show itself. There's a scene where Rogers is sitting in a restaurant with Vogel and he said, he asks Vogel to join him in taking just a minute of silence and thinking, uh, use it to think about the people who loved him and who helped him become who he was. And that's something that the, the documentary did it toward the end of its runtime. And in this film, it's a really great moment where Rogers and Vogel take, you know, fall silent and start thinking. And then all the patrons in the restaurant around them also fall silent and, and do the same thing. And as the silence wears on, Heller's camera focuses on Mr. Rogers' face and sort of does this slow zoom into a close-up. And Tom Hanks, as Mr. Rogers, turns and looks straight into the camera at the viewer. And that, I think, is a real, much more potent way of addressing the audience directly in the same fashion that the TV show addressed children, but doing it in a way that feels both um, much more attuned to the way that we actually watch movies, the way that the presumed adult viewer receives that kind of move as a radical entering into their space of somebody on screen in the same way that Mr. Rogers radically enters the living room of the child who was would watch him on television. And I think that's kind of the thing that I wanted more of and why the you know the the little models and the toy airplanes taking off from toy airports were fun but i didn't really find them as meaningful or as confrontational or or direct as something like that restaurant scene did and i i think that the script has those elements in there but it doesn't really need it in order to make the kind of point that that you're suggesting. Well, I mean, I I do agree with you that that restaurant scene is an incredibly powerful part of the film. And I talked about the documentary last year. I really loved it. It was in my top 10 of the year. And one thing that I appreciate, and, and perhaps it's just the nature of Fred Rogers' life, but that documentary pushed introspection into its audience. It pushed me to consider the way that I treat the people around me. And in that moment, I felt like everything sort of came together and I was pushed towards introspection. And I appreciate that aspect of the film that when I got done watching it, I I thought to myself, oh, how could I be a better 
father. You know, it's, and it's one of those deals where you're like, well, I didn't think I had a problem with anger, but maybe I do. How can I, how can I accept that the world can be dark and accept that there are terrible things, but work through those things? And, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that, that introspection here. And I, I do agree in the sense of like, this is still, um, a film for mass audiences. And like Mr. Rogers, it is sentimental at times. There's this scene and it's, it's in the trailer. So whoever, you know, if you've seen the trailer, you've, you've seen the scene, but these children, Sing the theme song to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to Mr. Rogers. And it's this really sort of beautiful, and for me, tear-inducing moment. And there were a number of tear-inducing moments with this film because it is so earnest and because it is so sentimental. And for me, that mostly works because that's a reflection of Mr. Rogers and because simply the film knows what it's going for. And it achieves that. I, 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 I think I just walked away kind of being surprised at, at Heller and the way that she presented this story because it felt a little more mature and, uh, much more, I guess you could say artistic than I originally anticipated. I think that for me, a lot of the emotional oomph that this film carries has less to do with Rogers himself and Tom Hanks's performance and more to do with uh, Matthew Reese as Lloyd Vogel. I like Reese a lot as an actor. His time on The Americans, which is sort of the thing that put him on the map, at least for American audiences. I, th- I think he's great in that. I think he's great in this too, in showing a a man who really does have a lot of that that anger deep down inside that he keeps a lid on most of the time, but does find its way out in sometimes frightening ways. And Reese does a, a great job at suggesting that kind of, the, the way that anger can have a sort of power over a person without suggesting that it makes him uh, out of control or monstrous in some way. He's, he mingles this anger and this sadness and this desire to be a better person and suggests it all just with his face. I think he's got a fascinating face and he uses it to such great effect in this film. I also really like the the characters around him. His uh, wife, played by Susan Kalechi Watson, is really great in what could be a, a very small role. She does so much with it. Uh, and of course, Chris Cooper as the father whom... Lloyd has so much anger towards is great at suggesting kind of this, this guy who is a deadbeat dad basically, and still feels the need though, to sort of try to reconnect with the son that he uh, hurt so badly so long ago. I think that's this film secret sauce for me is this cast and Mr. Rogers feels I don't know. It it feels almost as if the film wants to be interested in that, but it, it sorry, let me back that up. That's not actually what I meant. It feels almost as if the film knows that it's supposed to kind of be about Mr. Rogers and specifically the effect he has on Lloyd Vogel, but in reality it's more like Lloyd Vogel is the protagonist and Mr. Rogers is almost just a catalyst 
towards him finding his way towards a sort of closure with his own personal demons. And I found this the film to be much more satisfying when read on those grounds rather than trying to get at something special about Tom Hanks's version of Mr. Rogers. Yeah, I I mean I I I I understand that. I I think that the film balances it well and includes Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers in a supporting role, in, in a nice supporting role that I think works for this story. I like all these supporting characters, as you mentioned, too. I, I do want to get to the faith aspect of this movie, and I anticipated that the faith factor would seem a little bit lower than maybe in the documentary just because this is such a big film, and Tom Hanks is in it, and there's kind of a lot – writing on this movie. Uh, I did appreciate how his faith was mentioned, how they talk about how he does read scripture, how he does pray to learn to control his anger every day. And that that does seem to be a, a through line, that he is not someone free from demons, but he relies on God and and the word in order to work through some of those. And then there's this, this sort of powerful scene near the end where he's praying for people specifically by name. And he begins to pray for Lloyd and his family. And that was just, that was a really great moment in the movie for me. And it's one of those that seemed to connect. And, and you're talking about it. Mr. Rogers being this kind of otherworldly force. It's one in that moment that seemed to connect some other force that empowers him throughout this. And of course, we, we would say that that is his Christian faith. And so it was nice to see the film kind of highlight that and to really kind of create a prayer sequence that wasn't cheesy, but felt authentic. And uh, I really like that that section, that montage uh, section of the film. I liked it as well. I it's so hard to try to look on look at this film on its own merits when I feel like Morgan Neville's documentary gave such a fuller picture of both the man and his faith. Um, and and this might be just sort of a problem in general with portraying prayer on screen in a way that does feel like you said lived in and not contrived or overly sentimental i did find that when you have tom hanks on screen sort of saying these things that are things that Rogers himself probably actually said, I'm not saying this is inaccurate or something that the movie is sort of making up in order to tug on heartstrings, but there is something about seeing it in a simulated form rather than in the very genuine form that we get in the actual footage of Rogers himself that, I don't know, for me, it makes me hungry for the real thing and less satisfied by what I'm actually getting, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, and I understand. And I, I think, you know, to be fair, I think there are moments when I felt that way too, where I, I felt like, oh, 
I compared him to the real Fred Rogers and the episodes and the clips that I've seen and that I've watched. And, and I think that does make sense. Listeners, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood opens today. So this episode should release on Friday. It is now in theaters. We would love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us seeingandbelieving, capc at gmail.com. Kevin, we're going to go ahead and transition to an interview that I conducted with Joanne Rogers. As I mentioned earlier, she is the wife of the late Fred Rogers, and she provides some really kind of interesting information into the life of Fred and also uh, this movie and how this came about. And she also discusses uh, Neville's documentary and how that came to be. So it was really a joy and an honor to be able to chat with her. Listeners, we're going to transition to that. Once again, let us know know what you think about the interview about the film at cbelievepod at cbelievepod on twitter or seeing and believing capc at gmail.com Mrs. Rogers, it's an honor to talk to you today. I I had a chance to watch A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood last night, and it really is a wonderful film, as well as uh, a moving tribute to your husband. Thank you uh, for taking the time to come on the show. I just I couldn't agree with you more. It's a, it is a wonderful tribute, and uh, I I just uh, I hope hope people will enjoy it and. Uh, and just cry and carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I won't say whether I, I cried or not. <laughs> so before seeing A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, my biggest hesitation was how it would feel seeing someone else play your husband on the screen. I thought Tom Hanks did a fantastic job, though. Uh, did he meet with you while preparing to play your husband? And, and what did you tell him? Oh, no. You know what? He, I, I, We met each other. At a dinner, mm-hmm. and it was like you know maybe five minutes uh, for me. I a big hug and a wonderful welcome, and he's just a a lovely man. I think he just was superb, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean he, he he's he's a virtuoso, as I <laughs> I say <laughs> about people who do their things so well. I think everybody thought he would be good, and he was good. He has a lot of, a lot of, Fred, they were very different in many ways, but they were alike in many ways. I think he loves his craft and doing it well, and Fred liked that, that too. And I, I just don't think it, I don't think there could have been anybody better. Yeah, he, he's really fantastic. And I, I would, I, I think the suit, the, the whole cast, is superb. Mm-hmm. No, and, they and are. When I knew what the whole cast was going to be, I was just so relaxed. Now you've got the best; just let them do it. Early on, people didn't always uh, people didn't always get your husband. In fact, he was at the receiving end of of many jokes over the years. What has it been like to witness this outpouring of interest and affection now for your husband? What have you thought of the recent films and the news stories about him? The truth will out. Uh, this is who he is, and people are uh, people. There are enough people out there who are understanding it. It takes a while. It takes a while to get to know Fred and and to understand that that he's hip. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was actually, I think, he was one of the most intelligent people I ever knew. 
and I am always amazed at the at the depth of of the real thought that he had behind making it the simplest thing. And he and he could simplify it, but he could also tell you what what that thing was that he was trying to get over, and it wasn't so simple. I'm delighted that people are uh, have gotten to know him, mm-hmm. and I think it's it was through the work of "Won't You Be My Neighbor," which was uh, brilliantly done. I oh, think, and yeah. and a, a huge uh, tribute to Fred. Uh, and I, I that and that one had its very personal beginnings because it it really started with the filmmaker uh, Morgan Neville having known Yo Yo Ma because they were doing uh, film about his Silk Road ensemble, mm-hmm. and uh, they were doing a film about that, and um, he asked Yo Yo. Uh, how did you, you know, how, 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 how did you learn to manage that, the fame that you have so well? And, and Yo-Yo, uh, Yo-Yo said, oh, Fred Rogers taught me. <laughs> yeah. And, and Morgan almost laughed and he, and Yo-Yo said, no, I'm serious. He said, he could, he knew me when I was a barely, uh, he, I was a teenager still. And he, I was already having problems, even then, with it. And he said, over the years, we talked about it. Fact of the matter is that uh, Yo-Yo's son, Nicholas, got very, very interested in, in having uh, Morgan do this this documentary. Mm-hmm. And and he talked with Morgan about it, and they, they both were fans growing up. Uh, of the program, and, and Nicholas was on the program a couple of times wow. with his dad, and so um, the, they uh, came out to Latrobe to talk to us, uh, to look to, uh, I should say, to Pittsburgh, really, and mm-hmm. then they went out to Latrobe to the archives where the Rogers Center is, mm-hmm. and they saw. Morgan said. I, I heard a voice from some of the things that I heard out there. I heard a voice that I don't hear now. And uh he really he really wanted to make make uh, a documentary about that. Mm-hmm. About Fred's work. Not about Fred's life so much, but about his work. And that suited all of us just fine. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful documentary. It really it really is. So one of the uh, details in the documentary is that your husband was ordained by the Presbyterian Church with the unusual charge to do ministry through mass media. Did Mr. Rogers see himself as a minister of the gospel, and was he ever conflicted about teaching children every week while not being able to specifically talk about Jesus? I don't think so. He didn't seem conflicted. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think think that he— that he thought there was a lot that children get get taught in Sunday school mm-hmm. that was scary mm-hmm. and, uh, and and that they didn't understand mm-hmm. and i think I think he realized that he could teach the values 
of Jesus without getting into some of that. He got into some of the scary stuff, but at least he knew how to do it. <laughs> uh, what, how, how, to, how to explain it to children. Uh, and I so no, I don't. I don't think he was. I've, I've, I'm trying to think. I heard. I think I've heard him talk about God, but that may have been in in uh, speeches mm-hmm. uh, that he gave at colleges, and particularly. Yeah, uh, it it definitely feels like you know every week. I come across a, a story about someone randomly meeting your husband, and in a few minutes, Mr. Rogers somehow encourages them during a difficult time. Uh, kind of going along with what you mentioned about him being a minister, can you tell me a story about one specific instance when you saw the love of Christ working through something Fred did or said to someone? Well, actually, this particular movie, mm-hmm. uh, I think, shows that in Tom Janot, the, the journalist mm-hmm. uh, that this that this movie is about, uh, A Beautiful Day. And not only that, but uh, uh, maybe on a bigger scale, Fred used to say the distance between his voice and the camera and that person who was watching on the other side was holy ground. And... Uh, and he felt very strongly that that, that, that was so. Uh, I mean, that was his entire mission. When you hear your, the stories that you pick up, and we used to get so many stories about people who were really, I mean, they were, some were ill, and some were depressed, and some were just having a, a very hard time. And if they had to, if they had the good luck to just t- tune in fairly regularly, they seemed to get help. And, and, and so that holy ground produced a lot. And there's hardly any need to be more specific than that because it was, ju- it was there for the taking, uh, on public broadcasting, which was what he preferred. The stories there are just so, so very many of them. There are, aren't there? Just so many stories. <laughs> Yeah. So I, you know, you're kind of highlighting it just as you're, as you're talking, but I, what I love about the movie is that it seems to make the case that, that your husband's private life was not so different from his public persona. There is no, it's not, he's, he's not playing a role. This is him. It's still as someone who was probably closer to him than anyone else. Did you feel like there was a side to Fred that few others had the privilege of seeing and knowing? And uh, could you give an example of that? Well, I, you know, that that point you made, I think, is it, it's so true. And 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 uh, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, he was the same. And Fred, uh, I think, really, Fred considered himself, if you would have had to ask, an educator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what that was. The educators were his heroes. And I think that's what he would like to have been, mm-hmm. and hope that hoped that he was. It's a heroic enterprise. It definitely is. I um, also was kind of struck watching the movie how uh, the character who plays you, as well as uh, Tom Hanks playing your husband, uh, both highlight that 
Fred wasn't a, a saint. He was a person like all of us, and he struggled with different issues, particularly in the movie that talks about anger. Uh, he also seemed very open about his weaknesses whenever I watched the program. Can you tell me about a time where your husband made a mistake and sought repentance and humility afterwards? Uh, he may have been fairly quiet about that. I maybe think I think he talked to his higher power about that as the warning. <laughs> yeah. He didn't. Uh, he was he was really intent on. He never told me things that were that were from other people. Most ministers uh, should not. <laughs> and he considered himself a minister, and and he didn't, wouldn't tell me anything. Sometimes, oh, months later, years later, I would say, oh, I just heard that blah blah blah, you know. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, yes, I I heard that too. <laughs> and um, I wasn't surprised because because he also considered that burdening somebody. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us. I know you got to go, but um, it's been really great to talk to you. And I hope that uh, more of our listeners will be able to get out and see this movie because uh, it really is a wonderful picture. Wade, thank you. Thank you so much for a wonderful interview. Thank you, Mrs. Rogers. You have a great day. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing some more interviews with you and, and talking to more people about this movie. Well, we want to thank Joanne Rogers so much for taking the time to – sit down with us and just share her thoughts on, you know, what it's like to have known somebody like Fred Rogers and also what it's like to kind of see the outpouring of media interest and, and public interest in him after he's passed on. That was that was something really special, Wade. I'm really glad that you had the chance to talk to her. Yeah, I, I you know, I am so... Uh you could say lucky or blessed to be able to talk to some really fascinating people throughout the podcast. And we've, you, you, you as well, Kevin, we've both had a chance to talk to some really great individuals and it was a lot of fun to talk to her. It's a chat. I won't, uh, I won't soon forget. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's just kind of surreal too. You know, I, I think about what if, my life were on screen. First of all, that would probably be kind of a boring movie. But what, <laughs> what, who would play me in a movie? And what would the people who knew me uh, think of the person who played me? It's just kind of this interesting way to think about all of that. And so it was great chatting with her about that, about the faith of her husband. And um, yeah, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, glad I enjoyed the movie because it made that conversation a little bit easier. For sure, for sure. And, you know, even if you hadn't weighed, I'm sure uh, Joanne Rogers would have been, you know, absolutely gracious oh, yeah. to you. She's, she's a really, oh, yes. really special woman. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really great yes. presence to have on the podcast. Uh-huh. So we're, we are going to transition, I guess, away from the super nice world of Mr. Rogers into the high stakes, perhaps slightly less kind world of professional uh, car racing. Before we do, Wade, though, this is probably a good time for me to disclose something about my car background. Uh, My wife and I recently bought a used car to replace our old one, and I have to confess two things before we get into a segment where I have to talk about cars at length. I knew basically nothing about any of the information we were given about that car that we bought ahead of time. And the car that we bought was a Mazda of 
some sorts. That's the extent of my knowledge. So it's possible that I am very unqualified to talk about Ford versus Ferrari. (laughs) Well, you're in good company, Kevin, because I don't know a lot about cars, nor am I actually that interested in learning a lot about cars. I, I want to, I want to really kind of push the economy along and support small businesses by letting them work on my car anytime that that's possible. Uh, well, it, it's it's good that you're able to find such a noble spin on <laughs> on our our shared car ignorance. I really do appreciate that. All the gearheads in our audience are probably tearing their hair out right now. So sorry in advance, but we are going to do our best talking about the movie in this second segment. Ford versus Ferrari is based on the remarkable true story of visionary American car designer Carol Shelby, played in this movie by Matt Damon, and the fearless British-born driver Ken Miles, played by Christian Bale. Together, they battle corporate interference, the laws of physics, and their own personal demons to build a revolutionary race car for the Ford Motor Company in order to take on the dominating race cars of Enzo Ferrari at the 24 Hours of Le Mans race in France in 1966. So this is a movie that is based on a true story. Interested parties can look up the results of that race on Wikipedia easily enough. But my question for you, Wade, is... I guess twofold. Number one, did you know the outcome of the story before you went into this film? And also, as Seeing and Believing's resident James Mangold fan, how do you think this film fits into his body of work? Yeah, yeah. No, I I did not know what happened uh, before I watched this movie. And so all of that was kind of this... Yeah, it was just this fun surprise. I, I like Mangold. Um, not necessarily a Kate and Leopold fan. I'll just put that out there. Uh, <laughs> but you know, like 310 to Yuma is such a fantastic movie. Uh, Walk the Line. I, I like the, the uh, Wolverine movies, especially Logan. And, and what I, what I appreciate about Mangold is his ability to take these stories and, and, and his craftsmanship is superb. He is an artist. He's not just a gun for hire. His craftsmanship is superb, but his his films are all very entertaining. Even something like Night and Day with Cameron Diaz and Tom Cruise, just, they're just entertaining pictures. And when I, I watched this movie, you know, I, I got out of it and I was thinking to myself, this is one of those movies that's going to play on TV all the time. And all of our dads are going to watch it every time that it's on TV. <laughs> and we're going to like it. It's just one of those pulsating movies that is put together so well. And it's just, this is going to sound cheesy, but it's just a ride. It, it really is. So, yeah, I, I, I like this movie. And it's it's one of, uh, it, it goes up there with, with Mangold's, uh, some of his best work. Yeah, I had a good time with this film as well. I think it's just a really solid sports story for for lack of a better term. This it is a sport, the the racing scene that these characters take part in, and I think Mangold does a really great job of 
suggesting speed in 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 the the car racing sequences and this is something that's not necessarily new like lots of filmmakers have approached it in different ways you think of something like the the car chases in Ronin for example the Robert De Niro action movie where they're you know they're racing through these narrow european streets and the camera is really low down um by the wheels you think of steven spielberg's debut in the made for tv movie duel and how he kind of really ratcheted up the tension just from one car following another so this isn't something necessarily that you know mangold has cracked some code that has bedeviled filmmakers for years but he you can tell that he has been watching these other movies and really learning from how they're able to create their suspense and their action and finding little new wrinkles that he can add himself through sound design or through editing in order to make it feel that much more thrilling so the action sequences are a lot of fun i would also say that just the the acting performances themselves damon and bale and Catriona Balfe as uh, Ken Miles' long-suffering wife, Molly, they are just, they're really likable performances. Bale, especially, I think, is just having, he's hes hamming it up a little bit, but he's doing it in a really fun way. Everybody in the theater that I saw it in was just really laughing and having a good time. And I think those two elements, the great action on one hand and the likable characters on the other combined to just form a really entertaining uh, picture. Yeah, and, you know, to go back to what you're talking about with the technicality of the, of the movie, it, Mangold makes a number of complicated camera compositions look pretty easy, whether those are pan shots, dolly shots. You mentioned some of those racing racing shots. And to, as you watch more movies, and as we watch, you know, blockbusters are kind of just all over the place now. I have begun to appreciate camera work that just kind of lets us see exactly what's going on. And with a number of these races, the camera is locked down, whether it's strapped to a car, whether it's following a car bes- from behind or whether it's it's on a tripod and we see what's happening we don't miss the characters and the character dynamics that are going on inside these races and then too this is a this is a two and a half hour movie that just works well i mean the the runtime is it it it's fine uh, but we only get one race through the first hour and a half and all of that, it makes this movie feel kind of, um, I don't know, kind of like this classic or throwback drama. And Mangold doesn't get too serious. So they're, they're, you know, there's a scene where Bale and Damon just kind of wrestle it out and kind of fight it out. And it's just, it's funny. There's another scene where this, this sort of over the top antagonist, played by Josh Lucas, is locked inside of a room so that they can they can kind of uh, convince Henry Ford II to make a particular decision. So it's it's it doesn't take itself too seriously. Uh and as a result, it it's it's a lot of fun. And we get to know these characters. Another character that uh that I really liked, and he's not in it 
a lot, but John uh, Bernthal's character. Just all these little characters that we really kind of get to know. We understand their motivations, and we care what happens to them. And it sounds so simple, but we care. And so when we do get to the big races in the last sections of the movie, uh, those matter. And we see what's going on. We know what's going on. Characters are developing while it's going on. And that's just, it just feels so refreshing, uh, with a, with a picture like this. And I, uh, yeah, I like this movie a lot, Kevin. Yeah. Although I, I feel like I do need to stress that even as fun as it is, it's not, it's not just, it has more on its mind than just sort of showing you a good time, right? Like I, I think there's just enough work that the screenplay by Jez Butter, Jez and John Henry Butterworth and Jason Keller, um, there's just enough work that the screenplay does to explore what drives these characters, particularly Ken Miles. Like, why do they keep devoting themselves to, to this task in front of them with such single-minded focus? What, what is it that drives them? And it digs into that just enough to get some meat on this film's bones without really distracting from the fact that, you know, it is basically an entertainment and that's okay, but that doesn't mean that it can't explore what the nature of perfectionism is. The uh, question that opens the film comes from this, this monologue that Damon's Carol Shelby uh, gives in voiceover as we see a shot of his own character winning Le Mans in his own turn. And he he questions, the only question that matters is, who are you? And that's what is hanging over the entire film from the, you know, the fun verbal sparring that happens to the thrilling racing scenes. It all comes down to Ken Miles sees himself as a racer, as somebody who just needs to get the perfect lap. He's always looking to try to improve just slightly, make the car a little bit faster, and that has its own meaning to him, the love of the work. And that's really compelling. And Mangold sketches it out in a way that doesn't mess up the pacing at all, but weaves into it in a pretty satisfying way. Yeah, and and this is a movie, you hit on some really great themes. This is also a movie that wrestles with the themes of artistry because this is an art to those individuals. Artistry and bureaucracy and industry and the the ability to innovate. So you have the Ford Motor Company and you have Henry Ford II and they've been around for almost 70 years. And they want to break into this industry, but at times they can express this reluctance to make those big decisions or to uh, really kind of offer any sort of risks. And so we get the sense that behind a lot of these achievements is the idea of pride. And I think pride and I think humility are two really good words as we're talking through this movie and how that kind of plays out towards the end of the film. And you start to learn that the one of the biggest roadblocks to innovation and to artistry is that of ego 
and that of pride and what it means to build a, to build a business, to build an organization. And, uh, at one point, Christian Bale's character, he talks about all these lawyers and all these marketers really kind of getting in the way of what they want. And then though, the reason that they're able to achieve what they achieve, whatever that is, is because they have the resources given to them by Ford. So where is this sort of line and how does ego affect uh, great achievements? And then how does business provide avenues for growth and how does it get in the way? I don't think anybody who's worked in an older organization realizes that, that when you have these layers upon layers upon layers of rules and regulations, there can be sanctuary there. But at the same time, it can also be a roadblock to innovation. So all that's kind of lurking around in the background. And, and for me, particularly, that appealed uh, to my emotions, that appealed to my sensibilities. And it, it all kind of goes back to what you're saying too, Kevin, is that's not pushed on us too much. It's there and we see it and we could think about it, but it doesn't get in the way of, of this story, which is, I think it's pulsating. It's, it's really this, it really is a great story here and, and it's told very well. I'm glad you brought up pride because for me, you can almost see, um, Mangold exploring two different species of pride, I guess, in, in this film. We see definitely Ken Miles had, is, uh, as the other characters very euphemistically put it in this film, he's hard to work with, which is code for he gets mad at somebody who tells him what he can or can't do and throws wrenches at their heads. Um, so there is definitely a pride there in him, but it's characterized here as a pride in his work in stretching his what's a, what's available to him to its limit and doing the best he can with what he's given and pursuing excellence, taking pride in his work, maybe. And against that, you kind of have the foil of the Ford Motor Company, specifically uh, Tracy Letts's, uh Henry Ford II himself, who takes this pride in, you know, having the Ford Motor Company be the biggest car company in the world, and it produces more cars in a day than F- Ferrari's company produces in an entire year. He sees himself as this towering titan of industry, and yet all of those instincts that grow out of that pride simply contribute to the amassing of more stuff, but true greatness eludes him, and he has to turn to Shelby and Miles in order to find that. And that's a really compelling uh, contrast for Mangold to set up here and again, he does—he just does it so elegantly that you appreciate it all the more for that. Yeah, and, and you have certain characters who they make decisions because uh, they were insulted. And there's this almost kind of toxic pride. Uh, the film even wrestles with this almost strange male masculinity and – for a movie about racing, you kind of, you kind of just expect it to ride on pure testosterone. And, and, and some of that's there, but Mangold also makes a connection between cars and this feeling of vitality. But then 
We also get this sense in is what we've been talking about, the artistry that goes along with it, the pursuit of perfection. And there's something more than just, oh, it's, it's guys trying to stay young or wounded individuals who were insulted. Uh, there's something more. There's a line of dialogue that's set at the beginning of the movie and set at the end of the movie. And they're talking about racing and they're talking about this feeling and they say all that's left is a body moving through space and time. There's this transcendence that these characters are searching for. And they're searching for it by trying to be the best, by pushing their limits. And there, there's something kind of spiritual about that. And there's also this kind of yearning for our bodies to be outside of this space and time, this physicality, to somehow break through that and to find something more. And obviously we talk about that when we talk about faith, but I appreciate how this, this film had a, had a mature look at that question. And, and we could see the negative aspects of this quote unquote world, but also we could see the positive aspects of this world. Well, listeners, that is our review of Ford versus Ferrari. If you've seen this movie and have some opinions on it, or if maybe you just feel like chastising Wade and me for being big old automobile dummies, we'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, we mentioned that you can get a hold of us on Twitter at SeeBelievePod or on email at SeeingAndBelievingCAPC at gmail.com. We'll leave you this week, though, with the way we normally leave you, which is our recommendation segment where we recommend something from the world of television or film to you, our listeners. Wade, what do you have to recommend to our listeners this week? Yeah, so I was uh, thinking of, of course, about uh, racing, and I wanted to recommend a film from 2013. It's from Ron Howard. It's called Rush, and it tells the true story of a 1970s rivalry between two Formula One rivals. This film is not as good as Ford v. Ferrari, but I think it's one of it's it's one of the better films that Ron Howard has made in in probably over a decade. I found the racing sequences to be pretty uh electric and in addition, you have these these two characters uh one's played by Chris Hemsworth and the other is played by Daniel Bruhl and the way that they go about this rivalry and the pursuit of greatness kind of wrestles with some of the ideas that we talked about as we were discussing for V Ferrari. It's, it's a pretty good film and it seemed like one of those films that, that fell through the cracks, but uh, I did uh, very much appreciate it. Uh, once again, that's Ron Howard's 2013 rush. You know, that, that is a film that I've seen come up a lot as Ford versus Ferrari has been rolling out to theaters because it just has it does have this reputation as being another high octane I'm sorry about this high octane uh, <laughs> racing movie so um I have not actually gotten around to seeing it though so yeah maybe I should make time for that if it's anything like like this film I think I'll have a good time with it yeah, yeah, it's 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 something that uh, I think it's a good kind of companion piece here, and um, and not just the typical inspirational sports movie, uh, but it's got a little more you know meat behind it. Yeah, well, my recommendation for this week is a film that is a little bit less high octane than those, uh, and 
it's maybe more of a response to A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, specifically because the main character of this film is, in a lot of ways, the polar opposite of Mr. Rogers. And I'm thinking of Nuri Bilgas Jalan's 2014 film Winter Sleep. So Jalan is best known as the Turkish director behind Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. And this film is, in a lot of ways, I, I, I like to think of it as a conversational epic because it's basically about a hotel keeper and his wife living together at their countryside hotel and they get snowed in uh, and the entire film is sort of just them having conversations with, with each other and just picking at each other slowly until things blow up. It's a, a three-hour movie and it's utterly riveting from beginning to end. This this main character, the hotel keeper, is uh, a pedant of the highest order and he's a fascinating character just in his compulsion to pick at the people around them, but not push them so far away that they become inaccessible to them. So if you're looking for a character study of somebody who's not necessarily sympathetic, but is very complex, uh, Winter Sleep is definitely one to look for. And it's also a film that I feel like gets lost a little bit in all the critical hosannas for Jalan's other work, so I really like to boost it where I can. So check out his 2014 film, Winter Sleep. That is definitely a winter film, a very icy film. I I thought it was it was made pretty well. It's it's kind of hard for me to get close to those characters and into that movie, but it's you know it's it's definitely worth seeking out. Like I said, you know maybe if you're trapped at a hotel. For a weekend in some snowy place, it might be not the best viewing choice for you unless you're, you know, not around anybody who you might have tensions rising high with afterwards. But it is a very interesting film. Well, listeners, that is our episode today. Once again, tweet us at Pod on Twitter at CBelievePod. Maybe you've seen some of those recommendations, or if you actually get around to watching them, let us know. We have a number of listeners who do that, and it's always great to it's it's great to see people discover movies uh, because we've recommended them. That's that's always a lot of fun. You can also email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com a couple things make sure to rate and review the podcast episode that really helps us out we appreciate that we also appreciate all of our patreon supporters just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast that is that is something that we we say every week that we appreciate them but we are very thankful for our patreon listeners Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.